One of the things that's been really neat to witness is how much influence Betty has had on the world around her. It's so fun to see someone notice Betty and then watch their demeanor kind of soften. When Betty was born, it was among a batch of six babies, of friends and neighbors, all due within a few months of each other. Before she was born, I was so excited. She'd have this little tribe of friends and classmates growing up with her. But when we started to notice her delays, I wondered if having so many peers would make it harder. That many more people to compare to and always fall short. But what I didn't anticipate was the natural compassion that would emerge from the little people around her. Those peers would become great friends and fierce defenders of Betty. Now, I know she's only two and a half, and she probably doesn't need a lot of defenders at this point, but I wish I could show you how Betty's friend Alexandra gently strokes her hair, lights up when she sees her, and a nursery at church places half a dozen dolls within Betty's reach and makes sure that no one takes them. Nothing could have prepared me for how much of Betty's world would cradle and embrace her. Today I'm talking with my friend Angela about her journey as a mother and how her unique children have brought out the best in others and had a tremendous impact on the world around them. So stay with us. In January of 2013, my baby girl Betty was born. Later we discovered she had a chromosomal deletion that would affect the rest of her life. I created this podcast to share the stories and struggles of special needs children and their families. This is episode four of Bringing Up Betty. I'm Sarah Evans. Angela is a friend of mine from back when I lived in Virginia when I was a teenager. She was one of my youth leaders at church. And as I started to put this podcast together, I immediately thought of her as a perfect person to talk to in an interview because she has this cute little boy named William who has Down syndrome. But as I sat down to write Angela and ask her if she would be interviewed, I quickly remembered that she also had a daughter named Grace. Her diagnosis was hypoplastic left heart syndrome which um, basically means that one of the four ventricles of her heart didn't develop. She didn't have a left ventricle at all, which is kind of the main pumping chamber of your heart. We caught her heart defect at 20 weeks gestation. And so I was able to have a fetal surgery, a fetal intervention to help preserve the integrity of her lung development. And so that prenatal diagnosis allowed us to really prepare for her birth and the interventions that it would require, um, including an open heart surgery when she was three days old. They went ahead with the prenatal surgery, the open heart surgery when Grace was three days old, and everything was determined to be a wonderful success. And then when she was 17 days old, she came home from the hospital. She was doing great. She was doing so amazing. She came home after open heart surgery, you know, a little more than two weeks old on no meds, which is huge. As you might imagine, complications with this type of surgery are fairly common. But Grace did great. She was growing and eating like a champ, and and she was just on like a half a baby aspirin. And, you know, we didn't we we had 
uh, envisioned a really bright future for her. We thought everything was going to go well, that we would have another surgery when she was like six months old and then another one when she was about um, three or four. So so we came home for what we thought was going to be a nice, quiet six months. Grace had a visiting nurse come to her home a couple of times a week to check on her growth and make sure that she was healing well. And she was. She was doing so well that one day the nurse came and said she thought she probably didn't need to come anymore. And that night, things quickly changed. That night she just woke up from a nap crying, and when I picked her up and tried to comfort her, she was sort of inconsolable, and then she just went limp. They don't actually know what happened with Grace. Everything had been such a success, and then suddenly this change. It was a huge shock. We're not sure why she, why that happened. I think there's kind of a 5% chance of a sudden, sudden death in um, single ventricle hearts. And so she, she was that. Um, but that's the, that's the new treatment of choice for kids with her condition now. So she was the trailblazer and now the first one that, um, that helped to that helped to further the research in that. So she left a legacy. Seven years later, Angela and her husband were thrilled to find out they were expecting again. Baby number five. So I was, had just turned 40, and so um, we did the um, 12-week ultrasound to test for... Um, the nucleal fold and do some other measurements and that came back all normal. We were, we were pretty happy that he was typically developing it seems so far. And, um, I didn't have any worries that we were going to be dealing with um, another, than a, another new healthy child. And I was pretty grateful, especially since we had, um, such a, um, devastating outcome with, um, my daughter Grace and, and then it took us a while to even conceive again after that. So, we were excited that he was doing well at 12 weeks gestation. And then we just had some routine um, blood tests for screening. And those came back with some elevated levels. And that was the first time that we thought maybe there was going to be some issues. And so we opted to do uh, the new non-invasive prenatal test, a harmony test was the one that we had, which was a blood test that was uh, considered diagnostic for any of the three trisomies, trisomy 13, trisomy 18, or trisomy 21. And so I had that at 20 weeks gestation, but it was inconclusive. They, the OB's office had failed to refrigerate the blood sample or something. So it was, was inconclusive. So um, in between the repeat of that, I had a level two ultrasound, which came back with all normal measurements. I remember going to that and being so worried and I'd had hundreds of ultrasounds before between um, this pregnancy and, and my pregnancy with Grace. And I felt like I knew what I was looking at. And so I kept thinking that I was seeing heart defects and vision measurements of the brain. But it turns out that everything was um, looking normal in the level two ultrasound. So we celebrated after that and thought we were in the clear. Um, and then when the results for the second 
um, NIPT, non-invasive perennial test, came back as positive um, at 21 weeks, I kind of felt really floored, like I'd been on this little roller coaster ride as to, you know, positive, negative di- for these um, diagnostic tests. So I opted for an amnio, which I had had with my previous pregnancy and didn't have any problems with because the NIPTES were so new and I wasn't sure um, if I should trust them and because I'm obsessed with statistics given my professional background. And so I um, I uh, got the initial results of the amnio, which are positive and still held on to a little bit of hope that everything would work out without down syndrome um, until the final amnio results came back and they were positive. And so that was really hard. Uh, it was hard to have a diagnosis without a baby. Having a personal faith really helped me through that. I didn't have to um, really entertain the fact of whether we were going to um, keep the pregnancy or not. I knew that I was going to keep the pregnancy, but there wasn't really any treatment for this condition so I don't know. I kind of have mixed feelings about the prenatal diagnosis because I've had kind of two different experiences with it. With Grace, it was like so good to have a prenatal diagnosis because I had a fetal surgery and it was very it was very important to be diagnosed early in utero with her condition. And then with William, it's I had this diagnosis that you can't do really anything about. And then you know, what do I do? (laughs) I just have this diagnosis without a baby. And that's very hard. When you get life changing news like that, you think you might tell your best friend or your mom, but Angela and her husband opted for a different path. One that I think is pretty cool. But we actually didn't share it with anyone because after, um, having grace and I think going through that up and down. And I think just kind of processing the grief that we had to go through when you have this, when you have a diagnosis, because you do have to kind of go through the the cycle of grief emotions. Um, We didn't share it with anyone. We didn't, we just kind of kept it between ourselves. And because I know when you share the diagnosis without this cute, sweet, cuddly baby, then um, you just get a lot of negative emotions. And so because we waited, we kind of had this time to ourselves to process it and move to acceptance. And then, so when William was born, we, um, and our children, our other children were so excited. I mean, they were like over the moon, so excited about this baby. And I kind of felt like telling them, oh yeah, there's this Christmas present under the tree, but it's in the package, it's broken. So I didn't, it's kind of like, kind of like sucks the joy out of the rest of your pregnancy. And I didn't really want that because I'd already experienced that kind of with my previous daughter. And so I, I, I knew what would happen when I started telling everybody that we have a diagnosis and, um, and I just wanted to either put that off or at least introduce the child first, first introduce the baby and, and then the diagnosis. And so that's what we did with our own children, with our parents, with our extended family and friends. We told them, um, the day he was born. And I think the the response was markedly different than what we would have gotten. So instead of, oh, I'm so sorry, or that's sad, are you sure? You know, all those kind of typical responses we got, congratulations, oh, he's so lucky, or you're so lucky, or these things that were 
entirely twisted and positive instead of the um, sort of negative emotions or neon signs or kind of whisperings, whisperings every time we walked in, into the room kind of a thing. So I really, I, I really feel that's important to share the share the child and their love for the child because they're not always defined by their diagnosis. But I also do kind of understand through that process how hard it is to um, make the decision to keep the pregnancy. I mean, the termination rates for Down syndrome are at least 75%. Some people estimate up to 95%. um, Certainly in some other countries, it's that high. And it makes my heart hurt because that is, it's, it's really like eugenics. They're, you're just trying to eliminate this whole population um, of people because of your expectations of what they can and cannot do. So, so, but I do understand that feeling of, oh, we want to, you know, undo, start over. But this is, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's hard to make that shift with a prenatal diagnosis. And now that those NIPTEs are standard procedure now for a lot of pregnancies, especially if uh, for women over 35, then it is, I think it's going to be something that a lot of families are going to have to deal with. So Angela had this news, this diagnosis, and she had decided not to share it with anyone except for her husband. She knew there was really nothing she could do about it. There was no action plan, no surgery, no treatment. Here's how she spent the rest of her pregnancy. I was I was researching like a fiend. I wanted to really find out everything there was, everything there was to know about it and what I could do to give my child the the best advantage and I mean even like what supplements can I take while I'm pregnant to help with his brain development, you know? Uh-huh. And I didn't ever take anything, but it was kind of, it was, you really can get overwhelmed with a lot of the information that's out there on Dr. Google, but it is, it, it was good to have. So that's one of the reasons I think it was good to have the prenatal diagnosis. I had time to research and to kind of go through the grief cycle and come to the, you know, all those um, cycle of emotions so I could, end with acceptance that this was that this is who my child is and it's going to be okay so it it was it was good to be able to um, process those emotions before he was born so that I could um, then just share the joy and and just you know soak him up when he was born right so. so do you feel like you went all the way through that process and arrived at acceptance before he was born um, well, having dealt with the loss of a child, I was very familiar with grief. And I think that it comes in waves. So you initially are hit with like a tidal wave. It's huge. And then, but then you kind of always have these, these, these rolling waves that, that come in a little bit shallower after the initial, after the initial big tidal wave. But yeah, it, I think that I did a lot of the processing um, before he was born. I think my husband, not as much, maybe because he didn't have the physical connection to the baby until he was 
until he was born, but he is totally head over heels um, <laughs> with him now. I mean, I think it was hard for him when he was, when I was pregnant, I just catch him kind of scowling at me sometimes. And I'm like, stop, I'm <laughs> stop scowling at me and the baby. Okay. You know, we're, it's going to be okay. And so, but then once he was born and I, I actually have this beautiful picture of, of my husband kissing William and he just, the baby has this huge grin on his face. And mm-hmm. I just love it so much because to me, it represents how far he has come in, in accepting William and his diagnosis. In fact, that picture was shown in Times Square last year as um, part of a Down Syndrome Awareness Day. It was very, it was very, very cool. And we traveled there to see it on the big screen. It was, oh, that's it was awesome. awesome on the Jumbotron. Uh-huh. <laughs> My my two children with special needs are um, certainly more famous than all the rest of us in our family. <laughs> um, after after Grace came home from the hospital, we had a huge press conference with her, and she you know she was on the front page of the Boston Globe and the front page of the Washington Post and on CNN, you know, big deal press conference. And then and then William gets to be on the jumbotron, and we're just like regular people. It's so boring. <laughs> William is a true caboose. His siblings are 17, 15, and 12, and he is two years old. I was so interested to find out how his arrival affected the dynamic of the family and what his relationship with his siblings is like. They absolutely adore him. They're so proud of him. Like, that was actually one thing I was really scared about. Am I going to be, you know, embarrassed by this child? Everyone's going to stare at me when I go out in public. Well, yeah, everybody stares at us when we go out in public, but it's not because of characteristics, his facial characteristics. It's because of his spirit, and it just shines so big, and people just can't help but stop and greet and grin and engage when they see William. He is such a joy, and I am amazed every time how proud I am when I um, when I go out in public with him. And I definitely think the siblings feel the same way. In fact, my daughter who's in high school is just like so, so proud of him and asks to, you know, take him to all of her sporting events and pass him around to all her friends. And um, Mm -hmm. I just, I just, I love that, that she has that just real admiration and pride for him and him being her family. And, you know, sometimes scared to have your newborn baby who's prone to illness passed around to the entire high school. But I think that that's, again, one of his one of his purposes here to just maybe expose all those teenagers to the joys of having um, a child with special needs and and that it's not scary. Yeah, it, it is. It's such a scary thing when you're removed from it. But when you right. have like that up close relationship, it. Right. It totally, the scariness tends to fade away. I find even when I'm just thinking about like our future and what's going to happen with Betty and like the obstacles that may be ahead, it gets scary. And then I'll go wake wake her up from a nap or something. And I'm like, oh, but she's the best. Like she's the sweetest little baby. (laughs) Right. And I, that's maybe something that um, is a good rule for parenting in general. Like just enjoy your child for who they are and for um, where they are at their stage in life. Like, you know, one of the things that we always say as moms is, I wish you didn't grow up so fast. And yay, finally, I got my dream to have a child (laughs) that stays a baby a little bit longer. And um, it's, 
it's thrilling, it's joyful. And I, and I don't like to, I, I think it's a little unfair when you get a prenatal diagnosis or a diagnosis when you have a baby that you have to process a lifetime of disappointment in that initial stage of diagnosis where as you don't have to do that with your, we don't, we don't do that with our, like I didn't do that with my older children, right? We don't have to do that with typical children. We don't force people to say, well, your child's not going to be president of the United States. So you should grieve for that right now. Mm -hmm. Um, We can, we just kind of take those. It's, they're not disappointments when we realize that as a child, you know, growing up through elementary school, but if you have to process this lifetime of disappointments in at one time, you know, that is, overwhelming and uh, and not fair really why why if there were a prenatal test for every outcome for um a child then yeah everyone would be depressed when they're pregnant right yeah, that's <laughs> so true <laughs> you can't um shatter all of these expectations because of um because of a blood test like i just feel like that's so unfair to the parent and the child, like let them grow little by little. And um, you just love them for who they are and you celebrate each of their achievements and milestones. And so we're trying to do that with William. He, uh, we, we get really excited when he does something, does something new. When Angela talks about William doing something new, you might think she means sitting up or crawling, walking, but William's doing something really cool that's not even on the milestone checklists for typically developing two-year-olds. William has, as he's learning um, vocabulary, just before he turned two, we started showing him flashcards. And so he can recognize a, a word now by sight. And so he has probably a couple dozen sight words that he can read now, which not my other typically developing children can do, but we just sort of took advantage of his strength, um, which was that he was very visually stimulated. And so I think that you, you need to do that with, you know, all children. You see what their strengths are, see how they learn best, and just, you know, exploit that, I guess. And, yeah. and, and, and show them how amazing they could be in the methods that they learn. So, so I think that that might have changed a lot of uh, people's opinions. Like, oh, you know, some people might think that kids with Down syndrome could never read, but here my kid is reading and he's not even two. So yeah. that was, a, you know, maybe that little gesture can help um, shift someone's paradigm. Yeah, for sure. Shifted mine. <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah. It shifted mine too. I was a little shocked that he could do it myself. We just sort of discovered it. He just came that way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What a smarty. I know, because I'm like, okay, Betty, time to get the flashcards out. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Admittedly, a two-year-old that can read is pretty fantastic. But William's gifts far surpass his literacy. He's this magical child that I really think have this spiritual gift to um, draw people in. So no matter where we go, in fact, Jay was just with me in public. He's like, does this happen every time you take him out? And I was oh, like, that's awesome. every single time people, um, he catches their eye or they see him and they just, their countenance just totally changes and they just light up. And they and and so I took him on a trip just by myself on an airplane to visit my parents. And 
it was so funny to watch. <laughs> I'm, I told him, I told my husband, like, okay, like 40 people just walked by us in the airport and every single one of them made some gesture in response to William. Like they just smile or wave or they're grumpy in a hurry, but they stop and greet him. Like he just draws people in. And so I kind of feel like maybe that's one of the measures of his creation here to, to just expose people to, um, and I don't even know if half of them know that he has Down syndrome because he doesn't have a lot of uh, um, physical characteristics at first glance. And so, so people might not know, and I don't care if they do or not, you know, mm-hmm. but maybe they just need to know that you can still be cute and you can still be a joy. And this is, this is what he's here for. It seems so easy to lower your expectations once you realize that one of your children is going to be dealing with a lot of challenges in their life. But Angela refuses. She has the same expectations for William as she does for all of her other children. But with Down syndrome, everyone kind of has these low expectations. And we just decided that we're not going to set low expectations. You know, we, whatever expectations you set, then you expect them to meet them. So let's, Let's have high ones. We expect him to grow up, move out, get a job, just like our other kids. So, you, you and your family just seem like you have such a positive outlook on all of this, and I'm sure that's part of like what radiates to people about William that they can see that he's loved and that he's just in has a you know great family and good circumstances to be brought up in. I think that having that kind of support will help any any child, right? If they know, and I think that's probably medically proven. Like there's a, a lot of um, the children who were removed from homes, you know, a generation or two ago because they had a, a, um, a special needs at birth and they were removed from their parents and put in an institution and their, their life expectancy was dramatically shorter. Their development was halted. And, um, and so a lot of a lot of the cure for that really is just to love and celebrate and have have high expectations for them. So that's what we get to do when we have William. And we're just we're just grateful. We think it's great. It's kind of like winning the lottery. In fact, yesterday I had this thought. This woman at the school said, Oh, I found a four-leaf clover. And I just sat and thought about that. Like, why do we celebrate clovers that have something extra as lucky and you know something we search for, but why not do the same thing with, you know, kids with a little extra. So William has an extra chromosome. It's kind of like getting a four leaf clover, right? I think you should make a t-shirt out of that. I know. (laughs) I need to make a meme. (laughs) Angela is probably one of the smartest women I know. And so I loved hearing what she has learned from her son. I was in graduate school in a PhD program, getting my, you know, super smart doctorate degree when I was pregnant with him. So the irony was not lost on me. I felt like here I am going to be getting my doctorate. And I have this baby who I'm pregnant with, who is, you know, never going to be able to do something like that. And I, but I have learned so much from him more than I've learned in any formal education um, about about being joyful and um, living an uncomplicated life and just 
focusing on what's more important. So right now when I'm supposed to be you know, doing all this writing and working on my dissertation, I find myself just wanting to sit and stare at William all day because he's doing the coolest thing. So, <laughs> you know, I, he's, he, he's really um, changed my perspective on what is important in life and what is, what is success, right? Because success doesn't necessarily have to be how the world has defined it or how we've been brought up to define success. Success is um, being happy and kind of filling the measure of your creation. We are like the luckiest parents, don't you think? I know, I know. <laughs> like, but if someone would have told me that beforehand, I'd have been like, you are crazy. Yeah. You just, you're just telling yourself that. <laughs> I know. Or when, when people will say like, you know, I wouldn't change a thing about this child of mine that has these, you know, all these needs. And, and you kind of roll your eyes like, oh, <laughs> really? It's kind of like they all drink this Kool-Aid. Like, you're just crazy. You just, you just want to make your life all, you know, rainbows and unicorns. But uh, it's just undeniable. You, and no one can really convince you of it until you experience it for yourself. Yeah. And maybe that's kind of how, you know, I think that's how, like, God intended our lives to be like you can't just there's some things you just really can't learn until you experience them and this is just one of those life lessons I guess definitely not like something I think any of us would have chosen no and I still say that too and I know that there's some parents that are like and I wouldn't take my child's diagnosis away if I could I'm like oh I would <laughs> <laughs> because there's certainly some challenges and, oh yeah you know who wouldn't want to make their kids life easier if you could you know, give him some treatment that would. And that's why we do some of the treatments. You know, William has like umpteen doctor's appointments a month and therapists. So, you know, with all the like the therapies that we're doing, we're trying to do that so that he can have an easier, an easier life to come. And mm-hmm. so, so I would take the diagnosis away if I could, but I appreciate him as a person. Angela Vanderwerken is an adjunct professor at NYU, finishing her doctorate in economics. She lives in Schoharie, New York, with her husband and four children. Today's episode was recorded and produced by me, Sarah Evans. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe in iTunes and leave a rating and review. I'm still looking for parents to share their unique experiences in parenting children with special needs. So if you're interested in sharing your story, please send me an email at bringingupbetty at gmail.com. For notes on today's show, please visit our website, bringingupbetty.com slash four. You can follow Bringing Up Betty on Facebook Instagram, and if you'd like to be the first to know when a new episode is released, join our mailing list. Visit bringingupbetty.com to sign up. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day. And I don't even remember making you a baby quilt, but... You're an adorable baby quilt. You're a good quilt maker. <laughs> Thank you for that. I still haven't even finished Betty's like baby quilts. Do but... you want to borrow the one that you sent <laughs> to my daughter? <laughs>